We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me today is a special guest, Paul Cahan. Dr. Paul Cahan is a leading expert on U.S. political, economic, and diplomatic history, with a particular interest in the half-century between Andrew Jackson's election to the presidency in 1828 and the so-called end of Reconstruction in 1877. He earned his Ph.D. in U.S. History from Temple University, an M.A. in Modern American History and Literature from Drew University, and B.A. degrees in History and English from Alfred University. Dr. Cahan has published several books, including Eastern State Penitentiary, A History, which we will be discussing today. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay. I appreciate it. When you introduce me that way, I sound like a raging dork. <laughs> so I, I hope your listeners are not disappointed. I heard that introduction be like, oh, that guy sounds awful. We're a history podcast. So, I mean, you kind of know what you're getting yeah, into when you, when, you tie, when you come in here. Limits. I mean, that guy sounds like he's awful at cocktail parties. Before we dive into kind of the history of Eastern State, I figured I'd give you a moment to kind of tell our listeners a little more about yourself and what got you interested in history. Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, I as a kid, I was always interested in history. I remember my father in particular was a hoarder, and this becomes relevant because he had these illustrated encyclopedias from when he was a kid, and I think he decided, like, rather than throw them out, he would stick them in my bedroom <laughs> And they had these incredible paintings on the front of various episodes from U.S. history. And so I remember like this incredible one that, you know, had a picture of Woodrow Wilson on it. And another one that was, you know, Confederate and Union soldiers fighting. And that was sort of my first introduction to history. It felt like it was always around. And then, you know, you go to high school and you're, you know, mostly interested in, in things that will, for lack of a better word, get you laid. And that's not history. <laughs> that's um, so it's mostly bar <laughs> and other things. But I was good at it. And I thought when I went to college that I'd be an English teacher, of all things. And of course, what's the one author that every English teacher ever has to teach? It's William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And when I was at college, they had this this minor in medieval Renaissance studies that required you to take several history classes if you wanted to get it in English. And so by the time I was finished with that, I was halfway to, to a history major. And, you know, it just seemed like the next logical step. I was really good at it. And, you know, from there, I decided that I wanted to go on to grad school and study something that was policy relevant. And that seemed like history. And Here we are 25 years later, and I couldn't be less policy relevant. (laughs) Well, in your book, you shared that you first were introduced to Eastern State in 2005. Can you tell us what your initial experience with the prison was and kind of what drew you to it? I know 2005 seems like eons ago now. 
does. And actually, it's a really awkward story. My first introduction to Eastern State Penitentiary was, so Eastern State Penitentiary is located in an area of Philadelphia known as Fairmount, which is, is a residential area, was at one time also a heavily industrial area. And in 05, it was, it had, was kind of gentrifying. And I had been living with this woman out in the suburbs, and she ended up moving out and had left a bunch of her stuff at the, this house that we shared. And she called me up. She was like, would you bring this stuff down? And she was living two blocks south of Eastern State Penitentiary. And I had never been to Fairmount, but, you know, like a dutiful ex-boyfriend, I hopped on the subway and I went down there. And she wanted me to meet her at this coffee shop which was across the street from the prison. And so I was walking along Fairmount Avenue and all of a sudden there's row house, row house, row house, medieval castle that goes on for a city block, <laughs> row house, row house. What the hell is this? And so I, I showed up at the coffee shop and, you know, you have this awkward post breakup, you know, meeting at this coffee shop with her and we're sitting there and I'm sitting at this coffee shop, listening to her, but also looking at, this massive castle mm -hmm. out the window and it's the strangest damn thing that I had ever seen. And so that was my first introduction to Eastern State Penitentiary. And then about a year and a half later, I was looking for a job when I was in grad school and there was an advert for museum work. And so I responded to that and they scheduled an interview. I went there and lo and behold, it was that same medieval fortress that I had walked by about 18 months before and, you know, ended up spending another 18 very rewarding months off and on working as a tour guide at Eastern State Penitentiary, which was a, a really fantastic experience professionally and personally. Not exactly a great villain origin story, right? <laughs> I mean, I probably would have had the same reaction if I would have gone there and seen it in this residential setting. I would have been like, what the hell is this giant as you said, castle, because it does look like a castle. Yeah, it does. And, you know, if for folks that have no idea what I'm talking about, stop what you're listening, what you're doing right now, unless you're driving. But if you're not driving, stop what you're doing right now and Google it, because you will see pictures of it. And it looks exactly like I'm describing it, like a medieval castle. It is really shocking and imposing. And it was designed to be. It was designed to be intimidating. And that's one of the great ironies of Eastern States history is that it was in its time the most modern penal institution. Technologically speaking, it was cutting edge, but it was self-consciously designed to look medieval, to mm -hmm. look ancient, to look intimidating. It's a really fascinating part of Eastern States story. Even today, when you drive by it, even at 30 or 40 miles an hour, it's still impressive. And, and, you know, breathtaking. Mm -hmm. So it's it's well worth stopping what you're doing right now and, and Googling yep, it. For sure. Unless you're driving. Yeah. In which case, keep driving. Yeah. In that case, just wait till you get to where you need to go and then Google it. Don't, yes. don't Google and drive. No, I, I do not recommend. Yeah. So you start the book by sharing the story of William Penn. Can you share with our listeners kind of his tangential ties to Eastern States kind of inception? if you will. Well, so William Penn was the founder of Pennsylvania and was noted for, you know, trying to create a colony that was both a money-making venture and was a place of uh, religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And those two goals were intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you have this 
really peculiar kind of colony that is is incredibly diverse. Diversity is baked into the colony from the very beginning and attracts a great and, and grows spectacularly. And Philadelphia, as a result, becomes the most important city in North America, really until the eight, the, the first quarter of the 18th, 19th century, when the Erie Canal opens. And, and that fundamentally changes the trajectory of New York's economic development. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I mean, this is a shipping capital. It's a banking capital. The best people in, in, in North America are coming here, interacting. And it becomes a place where ideas are debated and experimented with and, and in a lot of ways, you know, becomes a cutting edge kind of place. And it's really a place where cutting edge penal reform, which begins in Great Britain in the decade in the decades leading up to the American Revolution, takes root in North America. And, you know, so you get the foundation of Pennsylvania Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons, which is founded in 1787 and becomes the leading advocate for rethinking approaches to punishments for crime, which Mm -hmm. at this point had been largely physical. So if you broke the law, you basically, you got your ass kicked Mm -hmm. in a variety of unsavory and shocking ways. You know, when Ving Rhames in Pulp Fiction says, I'm going to get medieval on this guy's ass. Like, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And by the middle of the 18th century, you have this whole philosophical movement that's wrapped up in the Enlightenment that, you know, says we should really be rethinking our approach to punishment. We should make it more rational. You know, we should make it more obvious what's going to happen so that, you know, man who is a rational being can make informed calculations. And this comes across the Atlantic, and and ultimately you get this society that says, hey, you know, cutting people's ears off is probably not the best way to deal with crime. Mm -hmm. And instead, what they begin advocating is incarceration, which has a number of benefits, one of which is it doesn't permanently scar you. So Mm -hmm. when punishment time is served, you can rejoin the community. And it gives you time, time to reflect on what you've done wrong, time to literally reform yourself, break yourself down, become a new person. And so Pennsylvania becomes the leading center of criminal justice reform in the 18th century. And you get the creation of the first penitentiary or an institution designed to reform individuals here in the city on Walnut Street at the Walnut Street Jail. And we should probably do a little a little talk about terminology for your listeners. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use three terms throughout this talk. Jail, prison, and penitentiary. A jail, typically speaking, is an institution for short-term incarceration, usually as you're awaiting trial or arraignment. Mm-hmm. You might be sentenced to jail, but usually for less than a year. A prison is an institution where you're sent to, where you're incarcerated, usually for longer than a year anywhere from a year to the rest of your life. And a penitentiary is a subset of prisons. It's an institution where you're incarcerated, but the goal is to reform you, Mm -hmm. change you, make you a better person. And so the Walnut Street Jail, which started out as a place of temporary incarceration, becomes a place of attempted reform. And it's an unbelievable shit show from the jump. I mean, Mm -hmm. they, they... 
really know what they're doing. They kind of build this wing on the back. They're trying to keep people separated from one another, but they're taking them out to work in Philadelphia during the day. They're, you know, they're chaining them to cannonballs Mm -hmm. and incarcerated people will do cool things like throw the cannonballs at passersby. It's, you know, not (laughs) such a great, Philadelphia's a weird place. You can just imagine you're walking along Mr. 18th century guy and out of nowhere, some dude throws a cannonball that he's chained to you. I mean, it's like something out of a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't go so well. They decide, you know, what we really need to do is rather than have them be part of the urban environment, we should really focus on separating them from that environment. And as we get into the 19th century and you get this the growth of urban America and the growth of the population and the breakdown of traditional forms of deference as we start getting into the Jacksonian period, there's this perception that crime is rampant. And, and so people start saying, well, gee, what are the tools at our disposal for, for fixing this? Mm-hmm. And that's when the idea of penitentiaries becomes widespread. And so both Pennsylvania and New York build model penitentiaries. The first one in Pennsylvania is Western State Penitentiary, but they don't like the way that that turns out, and so they tear it down shortly after Eastern State Penitentiary is built. And in New York, it's Sing Sing, which, mm-hmm. God help us, is is still in, in use today. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is pretty awful. Yeah. Although they're, they're about to open a, a museum at Sing Sing, talking about its history. In researching several cases for the podcast, the things I've read about Sing Sing are pretty horrific. So um, uh, yeah, Elam Linz ran it like his own personal torture chamber. It was it was not pleasant. Yeah. You know, this becomes the, the great argument among penologists in the 19th century. Are we going to do it like they're doing it at Eastern State Penitentiary, which is nominally about reform and about, you know, trying to humanitarianism or are we going to do it like they're doing in New York, which is about extracting as much value from incarcerated people as possible? Mm-hmm. And because, you know, we're a capitalist country that doesn't value human beings, we decide we're going to go with the New York model and basically mm-hmm. try to make as much money as possible from prisoners. And that becomes yeah. the model. And yeah. it's inscribed in the architecture of the institutions. Eastern State Penitentiary is the most expensive public works building constructed in North America at this time. The inmates, because they're going to be separated from one another. If you think about the things that you need, if you're going to be in a cell for 23 hours a day, you need running water and toilets and you need enough space to work. And so the cells had to be rather large. They had to have indoor plumbing. Anyone who's ever spent a winter in Pennsylvania knows that you need indoor heat you know, I mean, it's all of these things. And so the building is massively expensive. The New York model, by contrast, has the inmates in their cells only when they're asleep. And all they have is a chamber pot. There's no running water. There's no power. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing. And so as a result, it's very cheap to build. And mm-hmm. you really don't care what happens to those inmates. You can find all kinds of clever ways to cut corners. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you didn't even ask a question. And I just went off for like 15 minutes. You actually answered one of the questions that I had next, which was about the Walnut St- Street Jail. So you kind of like oh, just okay. segued into it on your own. Okay. My next question is, can you share kind of what the Pennsylvania system was sure. in regards to penal institutions? 
Sure. So, like I said, there were these two models. One is known as the New York system, which is, you know, tends to be thought of at, at, at embodied at Sing Sing. And then, of course, you have the Pennsylvania model, which is embodied at Eastern State Penitentiary. And it's an attempt to use archi- to mobilize architecture to implement this philosophy of reform. And the philosophy of reform was based on the idea that if you control this kinds of influences that, that inmates have access to, the people they're talking to, the things they're reading, the things that they're hearing, you can literally break them down and reform them. And so the prison goes to all kinds of lengths to break down their identity from masking them when they come in to only referring to them by their inmate number. You no longer have a name. I mean, it's this really interesting kind of psychological system of of destroying who you are as a person and then building you back up. It's, Mm -hmm. it's what I'm told boot camp is all about. You know, they break you down and they reform you. And of course the architecture is designed to reinforce this And Eastern state penitentiary. If you could, look down on it from above, what you would see is a square wall inside of which would appear to be a wagon wheel. There's a center circle and then the cell blocks radiate out like spokes on a wheel. And each of those spokes is the cell block with cells on either side of the cell block. And you don't enter the cells from the corridor, you enter them from inside. Inside the corridor is just a very small feeding tube. And the walls are incredibly thick and the pipes come out into the walkway because the whole thing is to try to keep you from interacting with other inmates because, of course, Mm -hmm. they are fallen people, too. And you want to control the influences that people are having. Instead, the system is designed to keep you separate and to only expose you to people of good moral character like the warden, like various visitors. And in fact, you can see... I have right here, that is a visitor ticket that would have been given to people. So if you were a local visitor or, you know, a prominent person, you could get one of these and go visit the, the prison and you would, you know, get it from the Pennsylvania Prison Society and you would be able to go visit and talk to inmates. And an Eastern State Penitentiary quickly becomes a tourist attraction. It brings in something like mm-hmm. 10,000 visitors in the first few decades of its operation. And people talk about how they come from around the country and then around the world to see this place. It attracts Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. who want to see this revolution in penology. And so the inmates are not in isolation, but they are separated from one another. And it's, it's all in service of this idea of controlling these influences and making you a new person. And I say person advisedly, there were both women and men at Eastern State Penitentiary. Women were never more than about eight or nine percent of the population, but they were there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, when they're in individual cells, it really doesn't matter if there's a man in one cell and a woman in the next cell. They have no idea, ideally, who's in the cell next to them. The thing is, it's mm-hmm. an incredibly expensive system to operate. And the Commonwealth, almost from the minute that the prison opens, demands cost cutting which motivates the prison's administration to begin altering the system, start taking women out of their cells, working around the prison as washerwomen and as cooks and as things like that, and then taking the men out of their cells to do manual labor. And this, of course, defeats the whole purpose of the Pennsylvania system. And that's one of mm-hmm. the themes of Eastern States history is the compromises of this system, which begin almost from the moment that the prison opens in large mm-hmm. part 
because of the costs of operating it. It mm-hmm. is a giant black hole of finance in the 19th century. It never provides the kind of revenue that its, its boosters said it would. And the New York system supporters can point to that and say, see, if you treat inmates like shit, you can make money. Yep. And, and Pennsylvania's you know, response is, but that's wrong. And that doesn't cut a lot of ice. Exactly. In regards to prison reform in like the late 1700s and the early 1800s, what sorts of behaviors or results were legislators trying to achieve with the creation of Eastern State? So there is this, this moment in the early 19th century where, let me step back. The American Revolution is a social revolution. It's a cultural revolution. It breaks down a lot of traditional modes of existence, a lot of deference between the upper classes and the lower classes. And then you toss onto that the economic changes that really begin from the Industrial Revolution, but begin picking up in the 1780s, 1790s, early 1800s. And by the time you get to the 1820s, the world looks very, very different. And you know, mm-hmm. elites, conservatives, whatever you want to call them, are kind of freaking out because the world that, you know, they had kind of imagined has disappeared. The revolutionary generation begins dying. You know, it, there's all these cultural things that are happening and people are just kind of freaking out. And on top of that, the society is urbanizing. There's a lot of social disorder or perceived to be a lot of social disorder, particularly in the cities. Philadelphia has a bunch of riots in the 1830s and the 1840s. It's it's kind of a nightmare. And mm-hmm. so there is this perception that, you know, property crime is on the rise, but also murders and rapes and generally people behaving in ways that we don't think they should be behaving. And that's mm-hmm. in a lot of ways what Eastern State Penitentiary was designed to do. It was designed to send a message, number one. And it was built on what had been a cherry orchard outside the city. But it's raised above the city. It's not obvious today that as you're walking mm-hmm. from what, what we think of as Ben Franklin City toward Eastern State Penitentiary, which is about two miles outside the city, what was then the city limits, that you're walking up a hill. But if you, you can look at lithographs from the period, it actually was raised above that area. And so it was designed to be intimidating. It was designed to send a message. It was designed to reinforce this idea that, you know, Big Brother is watching to a certain extent to deal with that urban disorder. And so those are the kinds of things that it was dealing with. You know, then as now, most of the people who went to prison were there for property crimes. You know, you have an Mm -hmm. economic system that's creating a lot of losers and a very small number of winners. And as it's doing that, it's laying the groundwork for incredible poverty, which of course leads to stealing to survive and, and crimes and you mm-hmm. know all this other stuff. And as a result, Eastern State Penitentiary is designed to deal with that. The degree to which it's successful is very hard to know. You know, nowadays when you're arrested, they they fingerprint you, they probably take a DNA swab, they you know take pictures of you, they have your social security number. All this kind of stuff. None of that technology existed in the 19th century. You had every incentive mm-hmm. to lie when you were arrested about your name. And so we have no idea if, you know, Eastern State Penitentiary supporters would tell you, see, the recidivism rate's like 1%. But obviously that's not true. People are lying. It's also a very mobile population. People are picking up and moving. I mean, the, the population of, this, of Pennsylvania is a very transient population. 
So they might commit a crime in Pennsylvania in the 1830s and then move out west and commit a crime out there. Well, that's recidivism, but mm-hmm. you know it doesn't get counted in your statistics. So a lot of that is very fanciful, and it's hard to know how effective Eastern State was. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's a lot of hyperbole. I mean, you know, the supporters of the New York system claim that it drove men insane, and in fact. Charles Dickens is famous in his memoir of his visit to the United States called American Notes, talking about how he, he thought that the Pennsylvania system would drive men insane. Mm-hmm. It may have, but, you know, like with our prison system today, you probably had people who were malcontents or socially misfits to begin with, whether that was a mental issue or, you know, a personality issue or whatever, that's what led them to commit crimes and end up in prison in the first place. And then, of course, you know, being in prison just exacerbated it. So it's hard to know. As you've mentioned, you know, the prisoners are extremely isolated in these cell blocks. Could you kind of give us an overview of what an average day was like for a prisoner in the early years of Eastern State and kind of what they could expect when they were imprisoned there? Sure. So in the book, I divide the, the prison's history up into various eras. And so in the, the first era is from 1829 when the prison opens till about 1866. And when you were admitted to the prison, you would have been hooded and you would have been taken into the center of the prison, though you wouldn't have known that's where you were. And you would have met the warden and you would have had a conversation with the warden. The, co- the warden would have told you basically, you know, what you were there for, what to expect, all that stuff. You would have then been hooded and taken to your cell. And the idea would be that you would never know where in the prison you were. And that was part of the security okay. apparatus. If you don't know where the, you are in the prison, you don't know the geography of the prison. You know, it's it's unnerving. And I will tell you, as a former tour guide, the geography of the prison is incredibly disconcerting. Even today, it's one of the reasons why when the prison did the haunted house, it was such an effective haunted house. Because you never know where in the prison you are. And it's very disorienting and disconcerting. Things look the same, but they're not the same. It's it's a lot. And it messes with your mm-hmm. head. It was intended to do that. So you'd be put in your cell and, you know, you would be expected to learn a trade. You might have a loom in there, which, you know, would be the size of a, of a bed. And you would be working it and you would mm-hmm. be looming or you would learn cobbling. You'd be making shoes or, you know, making rope or something along those lines. So you'd be working in this in this room with this cell where you have a bed and you have a toilet and a water tap, and it's a domed ceiling with a window at the very top in the shape of a cone. It arrives at a circular point, which is a very small piece of glass, which is called an eye of God sunlight. And it, what it does is it diffuses the light. Okay. So it creates a very bright space, but it reinforces this idea of surveillance. And this is where you would have spent, you know, five to seven years doing work. You would have had initially a wooden floor until they had inmates ripping up the wooden floors and trying to tunnel out. Then they poured concrete and you would have, you know, an oil lamp for light at night. But it it would be a very, in some ways, a very rigid and monotonous existence. One hour a day, you would go outside to your little exercise yard, which was roughly the same dimensions as your cell, and it would be a grassy area, and you could grow food there. You might have some pets. We have, you know, eyewitness write-ups of people keeping cats and dogs and birds and rats and, you know, all kinds of unsavory animals in there. Mm -hmm. But 
this would be your life. And then, you know, periodically you would you would have visitors. Under Commonwealth law, the warden was supposed to visit every prisoner at least three times a week. We don't think that happened. But certainly there were, yeah. as I said, 10,000 people coming through this prison. So, you know, people are stopping by, talking to you. The visitors from the Pennsylvania Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons are coming and visiting and, you know, checking in on you. And that organization still exists. Today it's called the Pennsylvania Prison Society. And my wife is a visitor, which means that she goes to state prisons and looks in on prisoners. And if they have complaints or questions or whatever, she can take those to the administration. And oh, in cool. theory, she can, if she can present her credentials at any state prison and they have to admit her under Commonwealth law, they don't, they don't do that because that's how you lose friends and alienate people. But in theory, yeah. she, can do it. <laughs> yeah. she is, is part of this organization that for many years ran the, the prison. What sorts of punishments could a prisoner potentially face and what sort of infractions would kind of end up with them being put in some sort of solitary confinement or whatever that might be? Good question. So even though Eastern State Penitentiary was supposed to be a humane alternative to physical punishments, that didn't mean that there weren't physical punishments. And these could get pretty brutal. One is the water bath the ice bath, which involved you being tied to the wall of the prison and having ice cold water dumped over your head. Now, in July, that sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. In February, that does not sound so good. And it ultimately ends no. up claiming the life of at least one inmate, a guy by the name of Matthias McComsey, who dies in 1835. And there's an investigation and they find out there's all kinds of corruption in the prison the warden, the head guard, and his wife, who both live at the prison, may or may not have been having weird orgies with the prisoners. There were some allegations about that. And, you know, anytime <laughs> group sex gets involved, it's, you know, it's going to be attention grabbing. They had this this cool thing called the iron gag, which was a, a an iron bit that would be jammed in your mouth. It looked something like a shoehorn. And it would be tied to two leather straps, which would go over your ears and down your back. And your hands would be tied behind your back. And it was a stress position kind of thing. As you lowered your hand, your arms, because they were bound up behind you, it would push that bit into your mouth and cause you to choke, which is charming. And, you know, there, of course, yep. there are, you know, beatings and, you know, all kinds of other more prosaic kinds of, of physical abuse. But, you know, those are the two, quote unquote, sexy ones that get a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of play. In some ways, it was a brutal institution if you stepped out of line, and that was easy to do. I mean, you're trapped in your cell 23 hours a day. So obviously trying to escape, trying to communicate, masturbating, stealing, you know, holding on to food, hiding things. Like anything could, you know, defacing or breaking prison equipment or infrastructure. I mean, any of that stuff could get you punished in a mm -hmm. lot variety of horrific ways. And you mentioned earlier it, it wasn't just criminals that could find themselves at Eastern State. It could be mentally ill patients as well. What sorts of stories were you able to find about inmates who were unable to receive adequate treatment because saying it didn't exist at the time? So documentation gets a whole lot better after the Civil War because you, you get the proliferation of newspapers. And they, mm -hmm. they get really into sensational stories. And Eastern State Penitentiary is great for sensational stories, particularly after the Civil War, when the Pennsylvania system begins breaking down due to overcrowding. And that's the mm -hmm. second era of 
Eastern States history from about 1866 to 1913, where you get a generation that in many ways I think is traumatized by the Civil War. There's this perceived spike in crime after the war, mm-hmm. from about 1865 to about 1870. And, and today I think we would call that PTSD. You know, there, was, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who came back having seen a lot of horrific things and as sure. a result had, had trouble reintegrating into society. So there's this proliferation of crime. There's population is swelling. You're getting the onset of another period of economic growth that creates profound inequality. So 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, you're getting a growing prison population. And you're also getting a swelling number of newspapers who are particularly interested in lurid stories. And that's where you get all kinds of really terrible stories coming out of Eastern State Penitentiary. There's an instance in the 1870s where a guard opens up a cell. And by the 1870s, they're keeping two prisoners in the cell, sometimes as many as three. And the guard opens the door to the, to the cell one morning, and an inmate is standing there and says, I've got something for you, and hands him a bundle. And the guard opens it, and it's the head of this guy's cellmate, which he had cut oh, off, God. severed during the night. You have stories about inmates being chained to the floor because they were just you know, they, they were obviously schizophrenic and, and incapable of mm-hmm. policing themselves. And so, you know, this leads to the death of one inmate. You have inmates being transferred to asylums, but, you know, then the, the justice system gets involved and says, well, you know, is this person actually crazy or are they a malingerer? Are they faking? And so there are all kinds of like yep. grand jury investigations into that. You know, Eastern State Penitentiary becomes a, a really horrific place in the latter decades of the 19th century because of this overcrowding and because of, you know, this, this population growth and and the total lack of social services for people who are disturbed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, you get the creation of, of state mental hospitals at the very end of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century. But, you know, in a lot of ways, they're not much better than, than the penitentiary. And, you know, they, they quickly become overcrowded. So it's, it's not as if there's a better alternative in some way, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're getting beaten by a prison warden or you're getting beaten by, you know, an orderly at a state mental hospital. I mean, does, does on some level, does it really matter? He's still getting exactly. beaten. So it's, yep. it's a really tragic part of the story and one in which, and then things get worse. In 1913, you know, Pennsylvania decides to give up the ghost and say, look, we're not going to do this separate system anymore. And it just abolishes the separate system, which had been collapsing for nearly 50 years. The problem is Eastern State Penitentiary's architecture was predicated on a very specific type of administration. And when you change mm-hmm. that administration, it goes from being an incredibly secure location to an incredibly insecure location because it's not yep. designed for people to just be milling about and wandering about. And there are all kinds of yep. alleys and, and, you know, dark corners and there's 53 ways to get anywhere. What had originally been a really clever way of dealing with issues of surveillance before cameras and electrical alarms becomes a real liability. And so in the twenties, Eastern state penitentiary in the 1920s is dominated by a gang known as the four horsemen. And, you know, there's all kinds of, sexual violence, corruption. There are several alcohol stills. There's a a flourishing drug trade. There are inmates who are counterfeiting coins and passing them out into the real world. I mean, the secret service shows up and investigates a couple times. I mean, it's, things are really out of control and it's really not until 
a World War One army general named Walter Grome becomes warden and basically gives his guards guns and says, shoot first and don't bother asking questions that things kind of calm down. Mm-hmm. But all of that happens against the backdrop of the Great Depression. And, you know, that, of course, spikes prison population. Pennsylvania builds a new prison to replace Eastern State Penitentiary in the 1920s during the boom times. And the mm-hmm. new Eastern State Penitentiary, what was known as Greaterford, opens in 1929, but immediately the stock market crashes. And so as a result, you've got this massive poor population, crime rates go up. They can't close Eastern State Penitentiary, which had been the plan, because they had recognized on some level that this institution was wholly inadequate to the kinds of prison administration that they were trying. And it just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, lingers on. You go through the terms of the various wardens who kind of oversaw Eastern State. Of those you list, which ones do you feel made the most impact in regards to actually wanting to improve the lives of the prisoners? I think that's a hard question. We don't know a lot about many of the wardens, particularly early on. There's a guy in the early 19th century with the improbable nickname of Nimrod Strickland, who is warden (laughs) for... Yeah, he's kind of an interesting guy. He is only warden very, very briefly. And when I was researching the book, I couldn't find a lot about him. But he ends up being a low-level Democratic operative out of Norristown and then out of Westchester. And so right now I'm researching a book about James Buchanan, who was the only president from Pennsylvania. And I've actually found some of Nimrod Strickland's letters going back and forth to people who were involved with James Buchanan. But by and large, these were not professional penologists in the way that we think of them. You know, these were guys who had been in law enforcement, you know, went into this. Nimrod Strickland had been involved in business and kind of failed, was doing this because he needed a job, then went on to do some other things. Like, it's not until the 20th century that you have a professionalized, you know, a group of prison guards. And, Mm -hmm. you know, many of those are people who kind of rise up through the ranks. And so, you know, like, Grome, who is warden for a while in in the early 20s, I don't think he really cares about the inmates qua the inmates. His thing is, I'm going to restore security, which overall is good for the inmates because, you know, you don't want these four horsemen running this prison as their own personal feet. Sure. You know, Warden Herbert Hardboiled Smith, who's warden in the 30s and, and up to about 1945, you know, is a tough guy. You know, he's your mm-hmm. stereotypical Philly tough guy. You know, I don't know that he spends a whole lot of time thinking about what's good for the inmates so much as he's thinking about what's good for the institution, which is quiet. It's interesting because at that sure. same period, Sing Sing, which had been you know, the model of abuse becomes in many ways a much more mm-hmm. progressive institution in the 1930s and 40s. It becomes sort of a model of penal reform in a way that Eastern State had been 100 years before. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, Eastern State in many ways is kind of a throwback by that time in its history. And it's only in the 1950s and 1960s when you, you get sort of the introduction of medical understandings of crime and sociological understandings of crime that you, you begin to see some really interesting attempts at progressive reform. And that's probably the period where you get the most sustained effort to provide comprehensive 
reform and rehabilitation. But it's it's very stop start. It's very incomplete. It's kind of half assed in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because you know it's look nobody ever lost an election shitting on inmates. You know, and my lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, I went. You know, I, I was born in 1980, so I, my entire lifetime has, for the most part, been the tough on crime era and the throw the book at them and, yep. you know, let's execute them twice. You know, that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. A lot of that being predicated on lies about crime, the causes of crime and all that stuff. And it's only in, in the last maybe 10 years that we've kind of somewhat turned the corner on that and, and kind of changed our perspective. And that is very fragile. It's very mm-hmm. tepid. At any moment, that could totally turn around. And, you know, if crime rates, quote unquote, climb up one percentage point, you know, you, know, you get these calls for vigilante justice. And so, you know, it's Eastern State Penitentiary, I think, reflects that. So I wrote my doctoral dissertation about Eastern State Penitentiary, and that ends up coming out as another book. And it looks at educational programming in America's prisons uses Eastern State Penitentiary as a case study. And in that book, I argue that prisons were always self-consciously educational institutions, that education was in many ways at the heart of the rehabilitative mission, but that Mm -hmm. they were never willing to spend the money or the time to do it right. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It fails. They say, look, it was never going to succeed anyway. Let's, Let's not try it. And then a new group of reformers comes along mm-hmm. with another bold idea that is basically predicated on, let's give these people education. It's totally half-assed and underfunded. It doesn't work the way they want it to. And it just becomes fodder for the, you know, the next group. And so it just becomes about churn. And there aren't a whole lot of new ideas. It's just you never get serious about doing the ideas, which is you know, if you have a society mm-hmm. that is as economically unequal as we are, that is as punitive and as violent as ours is, and you don't really invest in pragmatic approaches to reducing crime, what you end up with is a country that incarcerates a larger portion of its population than nearly any other country. And that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a really wild story. And when you begin digging down into it, you can really see the roots of our modern system. And there are always these calls for reform and they're never properly funded or or properly executed because incarcerated people literally have no constituency. In many states, they're not even allowed to vote after they get released. So of course they have no voice. So it becomes, Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of an interesting, uh, and by interesting, I mean shocking and hard and unfortunate situation. I don't know if we've touched on it yet, but a number of prison breaks took place over the years at Eastern State. Can you share a couple that are particularly memorable to you? Sure. So the best known is, of course, the the various Willie Sutton escapes. Willie Sutton is a figure who I think most of your listeners probably have never heard of, but in his time was incredibly famous and, and had sort of this Robin Hood reputation, right? He was a bank robber and he was very flamboyant and he was in a period, you know, during the thirties and the forties when, you know, it was during the depression and then world war two banks were in disrepute. People were looking, you know, kind of at the underdog and here's this flamboyant guy stealing from banks. He doesn't murder people. He's, you know, he's kind of the, the criminal that he's okay. He's the Danny ocean of, of his day. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he ends up at Eastern. So he's famous people. Allegedly a, a reporter asked him, Hey, Willie, why do you rob banks? And he allegedly said, well, that's where the money is. 
And he writes a number of memoirs, one of which is called Where the Money Was, that kind of lives up to this reputation. So he ends up at Eastern State Penitentiary for robbing the Corn Exchange Bank here in Philadelphia. And at one point, he kind of hooks up with this guy by the name of Clarence Kleindienst. Now, Kleindienst was kind of an unusual guy. He was a quiet prisoner, was a trustee, which means an inmate that was given unusual privileges, was a quiet guy, not the kind of guy that you would ever expect would be involved in this. Mm-hmm. Kleindienst got himself transferred to the very edge of cell block seven, last cell on the southwestern side of the prison, as sure. close to the wall as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And this slippery fish starts burrowing into his wall. And of course, remember, Eastern State's walls are incredibly thick. They're about 18 inches thick because they need to deaden the noise because in the 19th century, you didn't want inmates contacting one another. Yep. So you can go pretty far in and then down. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does. And he starts recruiting people and they start building this tunnel. And they tunnel underneath the wall, underneath the courtyard, under the prison, and out onto the flower bed that abuts Fairmount Avenue. Sure. Somehow, Will Sutton gets involved in this. Sutton would later claim to be the mastermind of this. No one is quite sure exactly, you know, what this was all about. But on one Sunday morning, these guys decide, this is our moment. We escape. I mean, they're in this tunnel. It's got electrical lighting. It's got, I mean, it's a very sophisticated tunnel. They go right before breakfast one Sunday morning. And everything is going great until they pop out on Fairmount Avenue just as two police officers are turning the corner onto Fairmount Avenue. So they, of course, scatter. The cops see these guys popping out of a hole in front of the prison. You know, it's a shit show. And almost immediately, guys are recaptured and dragged back to prison. Mm -hmm. One guy gets away. He's away for maybe a week living in Fairmount Park. And then he basically shows back up to prison, knocks on the door and asks to get back in. Yep. Eastern State Penitentiary claims that only one guy ever escaped and wasn't recaptured. And I have some qualms with that. The documentation is not great. And in my book, there were a lot of newspaper stories about individuals who had escaped where there was no indication they were ever recaptured. Mm-hmm. But it makes for a hell of a story that only one guy escaped and, and he was never recaptured. But, yep. you know, when they were researching the history of that that tunnel, that, that 1945 tunnel, they found all kinds of tunnels that were begun under the prison and had collapsed. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Southeastern Pennsylvania is a very wet area. As a matter of fact, if you look at old maps, you can see that the area is dotted by all kinds of waterways. Mm-hmm. And in the, what they end up doing is they end up damming over a lot of it, you know, sure. just building houses over it. And so every now and then, you know, we still to this day, houses will have sinkholes open up because there's water all over the place. Some mm-hmm. of it, comes, you know, gets culverted and turned into the city sewer system, but a lot of it, they just pour dirt and concrete and here we go. Yep. There is an incredible amount of water underneath Eastern State Penitentiary. It's one of the reasons why the prison looks the way it does. The prison was only closed for about 30 years. So when you go and you're like, my God, why does this building look like this? The reason is because trees back, you know, their roots got into the, the cisterns under the prison, backed the water up, and the water just backed up into the prison. And that's sure. what eroded all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Sutton talks in his memoirs about how he escaped from his cell one night and got into a tunnel and was under the prison and was in water. And that rings very true because there are pockets of water underneath the prison. Mm-hmm. And they find those. And as a result, a lot of times tunnels would collapse. 
data road, you know, all this kind of stuff. But every now and then, you know, they'll be doing research and they'll find, you know, they'll do like sonar research or something else and they'll find collapsed tunnels under the prison. There were a lot of them. When you when you Mm -hmm. put people in an institution and they have nothing but time on their hands, they get very creative. And so, you know, they learn ways to make, you know, lighters out of batteries and, and spare pieces of wire. And they also do things like make tunnels that have electricity and ladders and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it's, yep. it's one of the downsides of incarceration is that if you give people nothing but time, you run the risk that they will get creative and you will not like the results. Yep, exactly. Earlier, you mentioned the Four Horsemen and... Yes. Several riots have taken place throughout Eastern States history. Can you share any of the numerous ones that have taken place over the years? Probably the best known riot occurs in the 1920s. You know, it's, it's about all the same stuff that prison riots are always about living conditions, food, brutality, and the city just, the the police just put it down brutally. I mean, they retake the Mm -hmm. prison, they pass everyone, they line the prisoners up, they strip them naked, they make them run around in the cold. I mean, it's, it's brutal. I'm not aware of any prison riot ever that has ever succeeded. Mm-hmm. By that I mean, I'm not aware of a situation where inmates have rioted or taken hostages and gotten what they wanted and it ending peacefully and ending yes. amicably. Now, there may well be one. I'm not an expert in every prison riot that ever happened ever. But when you think about the major prison riots that we know of, places like Attica and and other institutions, they tend to go in one direction, Mm -hmm. which is they break out. There's a lot of bad publicity. Administrators come under enormous pressure to do something about it and not to be seen as weak. And then you get pushback. So, yeah, there have been riots, but they get put down and brutally suppressed. And it gives you it's always a good indication of conditions. Inmates don't riot until things get really bad Mm -hmm. because they know on some level what the outcome is going to be. Yep. No one is thinking, oh, you know, this is the the best way to address these issues. They're thinking this is the only way to address these issues. And they tend to happen spontaneously. They tend to, people tend to fall into them. And that's why they spin out of control and, and things, you know, kind of move very quickly. That's the dynamic at Eastern State Penitentiary when these things happen, and uh, they're never successful. You kind of mentioned that in like the mid 1900s, and by that I mean to like the 1960s, that even though rehabilitation had kind of come back to the forefront, it really wasn't. It wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't really doing anything. It was kind of trying to put a bandaid on an open wound. What ultimately kind of brought about the end of Eastern State? So it's a bunch of different things. One is, you know, during the 50s and the, and the early 60s, you see crime rates decline. There's a lot of anxiety about juvenile delinquency in the 50s, but crime rates in general decline. Um, there's a lot of economic prosperity in the 50s and the early 60s. And so as a result, Eastern State Penitentiary is less necessary. Mm-hmm. In addition, it's aging. It's an aging physical plant. And so as a result, it's costing more to incarcerate people because of the amount of upkeep that's required. And, you know, there's this perception that it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood. So, you know, you have kids 
playing baseball outside, and it becomes very easy to smuggle drugs in. You know, put some heroin in a baseball and throw it over the wall. Yep. You know, this is probably not a good place for an institution like Eastern State Penitentiary. By the 1960s, Eastern State Penitentiary has a separate institution in its walls that is where they would send newly incarcerated inmates to be evaluated. And it was that evaluation that would then lead to them saying, okay, you're going to go to this institution because you have all kinds of different tiers of institutions, medium security, maximum security, minimum security. And Eastern State Penitentiary becomes kind of the clearinghouse for deciding who's going where. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not designed for that. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's just not a good setup. You know, so all of those things kind of come together and they say, okay, we're going to move. We're going to close it down. You know, mm-hmm. We've got this S- state correctional institution, Graterford. We're going to move it out. And so they do. And they move the state prisoners out in, the, in 1970. And then there's a riot at the city prison, which is Holmesburg, which built in the latter part of the 19th century and is actually a mirror of Eastern State Penitentiary in some ways. So there's this uprising there due to, among other things, the racism of the prison's administration. And they end up sending the, the most vocal inmates from Holmesburg to Eastern State Penitentiary for about eight months until they can figure out what to do with them. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the last gasp of Eastern State Penitentiary, but then they shut it down. And then they don't know what to do with it. It occupies an entire city block of prime real estate, although you know Fairmount is a working class neighborhood at that point. And is certainly white flight is not doing it any favors, but they don't know what to do with it. And so there are all these proposals in the late seventies and the early eighties. What are we going to do? We're going to build a shopping mall, build some condos, do this, do that, do the other thing. And the problem is, it's so massive and so heavily fortified. You know, the walls are eighteen inches thick, and yep. you know the prison walls are something like you know ten feet down and, and twenty feet up. That it, the demolition costs are so expensive that they can't mm-hmm. afford to break it. Yep. So the city, which now owns the property, doesn't know what it's going to do with it. And basically, in the early, early 90s, it, it kind of tried to get its shit together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break the wall down. We're going to build a shopping market, whatever. And at that point, a bunch of urban preservationists and criminologists get together and say, no, wait, this is a historically significant institution in a variety of different ways. They get to put on the uh, National Register of Historic Places, and they, they decide to preserve it. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the genesis of opening it for tours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the city leases it. You know, the nonprofits created Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site, which is the nonprofit that administers it. It takes a long-term lease from the city. And over the next 30 years, it becomes an incredible economic engine, attracting millions of dollars in tourism revenue to the city and helping to spur the gentrification of Fairmount which becomes Mm -hmm. an incredibly desirable neighborhood because you have this incredibly desirable neighbor in the Mm -hmm. form of this internationally known historic site. So it becomes a really interesting success story about urban planning and preservation or historic preservation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, It's a really fascinating story. Yeah. It's interesting how it goes from being this like money pit to now all of a sudden it's, it becomes like a, economic engine yeah it just it becomes yeah. it, it becomes everything that they wanted it to be yeah and, and you know you know you're right i never thought about that but it's another one of those ironies that we talked about that you know the, this institution that ends up costing the commonwealth in a lot of different ways ends up becoming in some ways an, an engine of economic growth for the city yeah becomes famous and and here we are you know i wrote this book 
15 years ago, we're still talking about it yep. because it is so well-known and popular. Mm-hmm. And people come to the city now specifically to see Eastern State Penitentiary just as they did in the early part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Which is also an interesting kind of twist. Like, although at this mm-hmm. point you don't get a cool little pass when you go to no, walk no, in. No, no, you don't. But you don't. You got to wait for one of those to come up on eBay. As you discuss, they officially kind of close Eastern State in the 1970s. Is there anything else that you think our listeners should know about it besides, you know, like the flooding and how it's now a historic landmark and uh, anything else of, of insight? Yeah. Eastern State Penitentiary is, I think, trying to lead a conversation about criminal justice reform and, and the role of prisons in American society and in a way that it, it was not when I was, was there. So I worked there in 06 and 07, you know, its popularity was kind of taking off. It had been on, you know, ghost hunters and, you know, some of that national attention had come into play, but we were instructed to take sort of a very ambivalent tone. You know, you know, you get visitors and a lot of times they say, you know, really offensive things like, well, you know, that's what we should do to them today. You know, you tell them about the iron gag and these really offensive things about how we should brutalize incarcerated people. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just kind of had to eat that shit when you were working there. Yeah. I would say in the last, you know, 15 years, Eastern State Penitentiary has, I think, put a marker down on criminal justice reform. And, and its its exhibits have, have taken a, a very specific perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they had, you know, there's a new exhibit that opened up maybe five years ago that talks about how, you know, you, you walk in and it's really well done. I mean, I work in the museum industry, so I'm always fascinated by how people museums present information. Sure. I think it's incredibly well done. I mean, people at Eastern State are very thoughtful about this kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you're faced with a an exhibit that goes in two paths. And, you, you know, it says, have you ever committed a crime? Yes or no. And basically, if you press no, the outcome of that is, yeah, bullshit. You have committed crimes. <laughs> the reason you're not in prison is because you're white and wealthy and the crimes that you've committed, you know, not heavily penalized. Mm-hmm. But you smoked weed or you on your taxes or you've sped or you've done something yep and that's a really interesting approach and in addition you know they've made an an, an effort to hire formerly incarcerated people many of the people that you meet if you go there today a significant portion of their workforce is formerly incarcerated people and they've partnered with they like they have a beer garden now that and they they serve second chance beer which is another company that's that's working with formerly incarcerated people. So I think that they are much more than when I was there trying to be part of the discussion about criminal justice reform and about alternatives to incarceration in a way that they weren't when I was there. And they've also backed away from the haunted house, mm-hmm. which I think became very problematic because when people saw the amount of money that was being made, they went looking for institutions like Eastern State Penitentiary. And so some of the the state mental hospitals where there was an incredible amount of brutality, mm-hmm. Byberry and Penhurst being two good examples, were turned into haunted, quote unquote, exhibits that, that basically traded on the misery of the people that were there. And, and it, it got kind of icky. And I think people began saying, you know, maybe profiting from that and perpetuating those myths is, is not, you know, such a great idea. Yep. So it, there's been a lot of change and I, you know, the tenor of that discussion has shifted a great deal from, from when I was there. And I think in all positive ways, but in some ways it's a, it's a very different institution from the one that I worked at when I was in grad school and that I wrote about when I wrote that book. Again, it's, it's very interesting 
how it's addressing a lot of the things that it originally intended to address when it was first yeah. created. It's almost like a really, in essence, a beautiful like rebirth of the institution itself because it's it's trying to exhibit all these things it was originally built on and founded on in a way that opens the discussion, like you said, on the things that are currently wrong with institutions and prisons today. And in a way that kind of, again, I'm glad that it's moving away from the let's focus on all of the suffering of the people that have been here and make it all about selling the sexy haunted aspect of the prison, which is, you're right, it's icky to capitalize on the suffering that people endured in these places. And I think that's awesome that they're taking that that turn to like make it more of a positive thing as opposed to focusing so much on the negative history of the place while still staying true to sharing the history. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's not sugarcoated. I mean, it's interesting. My wife and I, um, because we're super nerds, <laughs> you know, if there is a prison museum, you know, my wife's a, a sociologist. She writes a lot about drug policy. So she's very engaged in, in these areas as well. And so, you know, we, if there are prison museums, we tend to go see them, you know, because mm-hmm. I have a professional interest. She has a different kind of professional interest. And it is shocking to me the degree to which many of them trade in sexual violence, exploitation, you know, those kinds of, of things. And those are really the stories they're telling because the history of the institution is really that not that historically significant. It's it's essentially a prison that was built like any other, you know, mm-hmm. it's not architecturally significant in any way. And I think that many of them saw the kind of money that institutions like Eastern State were making and became very bad copycats yep. of that and, and try to do what they do. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because they tend to be in, air, in depressed economic areas and doing what they do the way they do it is, is often distasteful. Now, I will say I lived for five years in, in Sacramento, California. So I made it down to the Bay Area quite a bit, and I, I visited Alcatraz three or four times. And I think Alcatraz does a really nice job of not going that route and not being exploitive and, and you know, kind of, you know, dealing with these issues. One time that I was there, their mess hall had been turned into a temporary exhibit that looked at individuals who had been released, who had been sentenced either to life imprisonment or death, but had, you know, been released. And, you know, the stories of their lives and, and, you know, it was like these cardboard cutouts of these individuals with panels talking about them and their lives and, you know, what they learned. And it was a very humanizing way to approach that, which was kind of interesting. And I think that, you know, these institutions, the, the better of them are doing some really interesting work thinking about this stuff. I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of copycats trying to make a quick buck. Yeah. And I think there are more of the latter than there are of the former, unfortunately. But I won't name names. <laughs> Before we kind of close out the interview, is there anything else that I may have missed that you would like our listeners to be aware of regarding Eastern State and its history? There's a great book written by a guy named Paul Cahan. It's available on Amazon. You should buy four copies. No, I mean, you know, come to Philadelphia. Check it out. We're more than just Eastern State Penitentiary, but it's certainly worth a visit. My own scholarly work deals a lot with Pennsylvania and this area. In fact, as a matter of fact, I'm I have the copy edits here on my desk from my next book, which is a history of Philadelphia that talks a lot about this stuff in a, you know, 
the history of the city, which is fascinating and infuriating in some ways. <laughs> but look, Eastern State Penitentiary is, is a really fascinating place. And I would highly recommend that if you come to Philadelphia, that you make time to go see it and, and you spend some time thinking about the kinds of messages and, and takeaways that it's trying to encourage. And, you know, come to my website. I, I have an email address. If you want to rant and rave at me, send me an email. <laughs> my Paul Cahan, K-A-H-A-N.com. I get all kinds of hate mail all the time. I, you know, I've written about the Civil War, so I get neo-Confederates screaming at me. I've written about banking, so, you know, I get all kinds of anti-Semitic stuff. So throw in your lot. Send me some hate mail. <laughs> How many people are going to openly be like, troll me? It's fine. I throw it my way. I, you know, at this point... I, you write a book, you write books about the Civil War and banking and prisons. You're, you're, you're really putting a target on yourself. Yep. Um, you're really asking for it. So go ahead, whatever. Well, I would like once again, thank Paul for joining me on the show oh. today to discuss history of Eastern State. As you mentioned, we will have a link to his website in the show notes where you can purchase a copy of the book, Eastern State Penitentiary, A History, as well as a number of his other published works. And... On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay, and I'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. <laughs>